0: morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Welcome to Faith Bible Fellowship. My name is Ricardo. I'm one of the leaders here. So glad that you guys were able to make it out on this rainy, pouring day. We're glad that you guys are here to worship with us. Praise God and just open up his word. Like it was mentioned before, we're going to have a fellowship meal. So feel free to hang out after. It's downstairs in the basement. We we'll love to just break bread and just have fellowship over a great food. We're going to be continuing going through the book of Philippians. We're going to be in the third chapter, verses 1 through 11. So feel free to turn there. Today, we, we live, our society today tells us that all we got to do Is is we can have whatever we like, we can get whatever we want, if we just work hard enough, if we just put in enough effort and we put in the work that we're able to get, we can get the money and we're able to just receive whatever we like. We can work hard enough to get what we like. And it's just this idea of work, work, work. And then you're good to go. You put in all the effort and you put in all the time. You get all the money you, you want or need. And then you're able to just go and purchase, go and get whatever you may like. And, and to an extent that's true. To an extent we are supposed to work. We're supposed to work hard. We're supposed to have a good ethic. And we are supposed to just honor God in our work. But we know that, that the Bible is, tells us differently. We know that, that we don't always work for the things that, that is given to us, that we don't earn certain things when it comes to what the Bible says. So we come to a passage where we see Paul talking about the fact that, that we've received the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ has done on the cross. And so it, it kind of counters what we're taught in today's culture, in today's society, that all you have to do is work. And what the Bible says when it comes to, to our salvation, when it comes to our righteousness, is that it does not matter what you do. It does not matter how long you pray. It doesn't matter how, how often you read your Bible. That the salvation, that the faith that you have is given to you by God. And it goes completely against what our society says is just work, work, work. So we come to a passage where where Paul is speaking against that in essence, where where he talks about us receiving the righteousness of Christ through faith, not through anything else, not through our works, not through anything that we've ever done, but, but through just simply having faith in what the work of Christ did on the cross. And so we're going to be talking about that today, and as we work our way through this passage, what we see, one of the central themes that I see throughout this is this idea that that Paul's getting at that Christ above all, that above everything that we have in our life, above everything that we work for, everything that we do, Christ stands above all of that. That he reigns over all things that we have, over all the work that we do, over who we are to the core, that Christ reigns above all of that. So I would like to talk about what it means to have Christ to have that model in our life, to be Christ above all. And what that looks like for us as, as followers of Christ, as believers, what it means to just say and walk out this life of Christ above all. So if you're with me, if you can turn to Philippians 3. And as we've been doing lately, if we can just stand for the reading of God's word and just reverence for it. starting in verse 1. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father God, we, we bring ourselves, we humble ourselves before your throne, Father God, and we just bring you. All the blessings that we can, Lord. We thank you for for getting us here safely, Father God. We thank you for for giving us a room that that we can sit comfortably, that we can sit in, in comfortable weather, Lord, and just learn from you. Just praise you and sing songs of praise, Father God, and worship you and pray and open up your word and learn, Father God, to receive whatever you want us to receive, Father God. Be with us. Keep us safe. Eliminate any distractions that we may have, Lord. May we just take the next several moments. To just be attentive to your spirit, Father God. To be attentive to you and to gain whatever you want us to gain from, from this, this, this set of passages, Father God. We ask that you be here, Lord, work in us. Chisel away anything that needs to be chiseled away, Lord. May, may we see your word for what it is and it is a true, Father God. May we be encouraged by it. Speak through me, Lord. Maybe you speak maybe your words coming from my mouth, Father God. We ask that you bless this time and honors this time together. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be a blessing. In your name we pray. So, as, as I said, one of the central things that I saw as I was studying this passage this week was this idea that, that Christ is above all things, that he reigns as Lord, as King, above all things in our life. And what does that mean for us as, as believers? How does that look like according to, to what we see here in Philippians 3, 1 through 11? So I have three main points for you guys that I've gathered as I study this. And I'd like just to share it with you guys. For us, for, for believers, for Christians, putting Christ above all means, first and foremost, guarding ourselves against false teachers. And we see this right, right, right in the first, in the, in the second verse. Look out for the dogs. Look Out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And so, so Paul is is in essence, he's giving the Philippians this warning. He's saying, Look out, and he uses the phrase three times Look out, look out, look out. And we see from verse 1 that this isn't the first time that Paul has addressed this issue with the Philippians because he says, He says in verse 1, to write the same same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So we're able to see that Paul has addressed these issues with the Philippians before. And we don't know in what sense. We don't know if it's simply the, the other letters that Paul writes, whether it's Galatians or, or Corinthians that being circulated. And so the Philippians have read that before, or perhaps it's a letter that we just don't have that the Philippians had at that time. But to some extent, we know that Paul has talked about these things before because he says to write them to you again is of no trouble to me and it is safe for you. And so we see here that he's warning them. He's warning them, he says, look out, or as some of the other translations put it, beware or, or, or to watch out. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evildoers, or those who, who mutilate the flesh. In and, and context, and looking, when we study other books, we realize that Paul is really talking about look out for the Judaizers, those, those false teachers who come creep into the church and try to bring a different gospel than what is what christ is preaching and we see that he's talking about judaizers and what is judaizers are just people who who taught that the gentiles must first become jews and obey the old testament laws in order to be saved so he's saying watch out for these false teachers who are telling you that in order to be saved you first have to obey the old testament laws and become jews and Paul's saying that's not the case. That's not true. And, and it goes so far that he calls them dogs. Look out for the dogs. And this was a common phrase used by the Jewish people at that time to refer to really the Gentiles because they viewed the Gentiles people as being richly unclean. So they used the phrase dogs. And what Paul's doing is, he's, in a sense, he's flipping that. He's calling the Judaizers. He's calling the false teachers dogs themselves. Is because of their perversion of the gospel, because of what they're trying to do. They're trying to add on to the gospel, things that aren't there. And they're trying to, when he sends me to to flesh, what they're telling the the, the, um, Judaizers, what they're telling the Gentiles is you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You have to follow all of the Old Testament laws and become Jewish and become and be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul's saying that's not true, that these people, they're dogs. And he goes on. He says they're evildoers. So we see that that he's referring to false teachers as as people who are evildoers. And, and what we see today, a lot about what's common about false teachers is that it just it sounds good. Sometimes what happens is is they even know how to how to twist the scriptures, twist the Bible to make it sound good to us. And if we're not aware, if we're not discerning, we can easily fall prey to some of these false teachers and these evildoers. They're deceitful workers. They were unfaithful to the work of the Lord, and they wanted to praise their works above the works of the Lord. One thing that's very common about false teachers, especially the Judaizers, but even in today's time, is, is that they deceitfully handle the Word of God. That they're clever, and that they know the Word of God, and they twist it to meet their means, to point their agenda forward. And he calls them, Paul here calls them evildoers. So what we see is that, that an evildoer is anyone who, who puts the good works of the law over the work of the gospel when they want to put their own works, when they, when they see that, that they can earn their own salvation or whatever it may be, but when they put their works above the law, I mean above the word of God, above the gospel, Paul calls them evildoers. I think Paul, Paul's just an interesting man. He's a clever man. I think he, he purposely uses this phrase to mutilate the flesh when he's talking about them wanting to circumcise the Gentiles. Because really, when he says they mutilate the flesh, it points back to Leviticus 21.5, where it says they shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. So he's pointing back to that. He's saying the very thing that they're trying to teach you, they're trying to get you to do, goes against the very law that they're trying to preach. They're trying to get you to mutilate the flesh, which goes against the very law. So he's very cleverly using some, I believe, some wordplay here, and he's calling them dogs. He's calling them evildoers. One of the things that stood out to me as I read, read this first passage, the second verse, is how many times Paul says, look out. It's three times, and, and to me it's a very active language. He's telling them, look out, look out, look out. And we know that, that as, as people that it's the job of the leaders, of the shepherds of the church, of the pastors and elders to guard their flock, to make sure that, that wolves don't come into, the, into their midst and lead them astray. But I believe that at this point, Paul's also saying, look out, because he's, he's calling them to their own responsibility. That at some point, as believers, we have to take ownership of, the, of our faith, ownership of, of our spiritual growth, and have to be on guard and looking out. When he says, look out, he's saying, be observant, pay close attention for anyone or anything that could lead you astray, that can point you towards a false gospel. And in today's society, that's very easy. We have access to countless, thousands and thousands, perhaps even millions of different sermons of books on different topics on theology. And if we're not careful, if we just listen to anyone or we just pick up any book, we could be leading ourselves, teaching ourselves false doctrines or, or, or to a false gospel if we're not being careful, if we're not discerning some of the things that we're listening to. And I'm not just talking about the things that we watch or listen to, but more importantly, some of the times we go throughout the week and we, we have certain pastors or sermons that we like to listen to, and if we're not carefully watching out what we're feeding ourselves, we could be leading ourselves astray, and we could be listening perhaps to someone who's preaching a false gospel. So Paul's saying, look out. He's telling them, take ownership, take responsibility of your spiritual growth. And so at some point, the responsibility falls on us as followers of Christ to be actively looking out for false preachers, for preachers who teach a false gospel. And we have to recognize these, these teachings. And the way that we recognize these teachings is to have a proper understanding of what the Bible teaches. In order for us to have a proper understanding of what the Bible teaches, then we have to, first and foremost open up our Bibles, we have to prayfully read our Bibles, we have to study our Bibles, and we have to seek help when we need help. If we're like, you know what, this doesn't sound too good. Well, that's why you have leaders within the church, and you can take that to. So I was just reading this from this person, and it just doesn't sound right to me. What, What are your thoughts? But we're supposed to be discerning any type of false teaching, and we can only do that by staying in prayer, by reading and studying our Bibles carefully. And understanding the word of God. And that's how, we're, we, are, that's how we can remain active and, and remain on, on guard about any false teaching that, that's trying to be taught. My second point is, is that to, in order for us to live a life that, that says Christ reigns over everything, that Christ is above everything in our life, we have to realize that we have a new identity in Christ. And really... As I looked at this this passage, I saw this in in the threefolds, three different ways that we have a new identity and and the implications of us having a new identity in Christ. The first one is new identity means we worship God by, by, by the spirit, by the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse three, for we are the circumcision or as the NASB translates it, the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but put no confidence in the flesh. This idea that that we, as followers of Christ, under the new covenant, we've been given a new identity, that our hearts have been, in essence, circumcised, it's been peeled away, and we now are able to worship God by in the Spirit and in the truth. And so this, this work is done by God himself. This isn't something that we do. This isn't something that we slowly chip away the, the, um, the flesh in our hearts to be more aligned with God. But God does the work. We see this in, Deuteron- in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This idea that our hearts under the new covenant have been circumcised by God himself. And by, through this circumcision, through the peeling of our, our stone hearts, we're now able to pray and worship God in the true spirit and truth. And so we see that that, that that circumcision is simply just a symbol of what must happen to a person's heart under the new covenant. That we have to peel back and remove any type of, of, that God peels back and removes any type of hatred, any type of, of, any type of hatred towards God himself. He does this work. And it's through this work, it's through this new circumcised heart that we're able to worship God in spirit of God and in glory in Christ Jesus. So we see that that circumcision leads us to worship God by the Holy Spirit, that it's God who's doing this. John four twenty three to 24 says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And we're able to do this because of the veil that's been taken off our hearts by God himself, that he has removed the veil from our hearts. And because of God regenerating us and bringing us to himself, we're able now to freely worship him in spirit and in truth. So we're given the Holy Spirit and made alive by it. Therefore, we now have the ability to truly worship God in all areas of our life, not only in public, but in private and in family worship and in our own selves at work, wherever it may be that we're able to finally worship God in spirit and in truth that we've been given the Holy Spirit. And our new identity is rooted in that. That we're able to worship God because of what God has done, not because of our own works, but because of the Holy Spirit being given to us. The second sub-point here is I believe that our new identity means that we have to be put to rest our old selves. We see this in in verses 4 through 7. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for, for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of he, Hebrews of Hebrews, as to the law, of Pharisee, a Pharisee as to, the, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. For whatever gain I had, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul goes here and he lists all of these accolades that he's picked up over his life. He's like, if anyone is blameless before the law, it's me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. He can even trace his lineage back to to one of the tribes. And Paul's saying, if anyone is able to boast in himself and boast in his own works, it's I. I'm able to do this. I'm the one I can be found blameless before the very law that these false teachers are trying to preach. What does he say? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That even though he was blameless before the law, that still did not compare to the freedom that that Paul had in Christ. That even though he was blameless, he could just the righteousness that he got from Christ was greater than any righteousness that he could bring to himself. The fact that he could be declared blameless on their law did not matter because of the righteousness that he had in Christ. So, so all the fame or whatever or the money or the status that came with, with what Paul used to do before his conversion did not matter anymore. Paul understood what it really meant to be in Christ or to boast in Christ, to be completely transformed by the renewing of their mind. Paul was a new, was a new creature, and he understood what that meant for him, that, that everything that he did in the past no longer mattered, and he didn't care about it. But he is a new creature. He is a new person, and in that, that's what he boasted is the fact that he's able to be made new in Christ, Paul says it in Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we see that, that Paul, being a new creation, has new desires. That, that, that his, there's things that are realigned in him, the way he sees the world differently. That he's no longer persecuting the church, but he's making disciples. That's the transformation that happened within Paul. When he was a new creature, he went from persecuting the church to making disciples of Christ. A complete 180. He says, we have been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our dependence now is on Christ. We, we lean on Christ. He's the one who gives us this new creation and these new desires in our hearts. And we're no longer like the people that we used to be. And it no longer matters to us. We see that, that, that for a new identity, we're made new and we are a new creation that leads means that we have to sacrifice for Christ. We see this in in verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So we see that Paul puts no confidence in his works. That everything he knew, that everything he can get, or or that he will get, he counts it as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So that everything in the past, but also everything now, is not worth more than Christ is worth more. Just simply knowing him. What he means by knowing Christ, it's knowing Christ as his Redeemer, as his Savior. Paul was willing to risk it all for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. The simple fact that Christ, that Paul knew Christ as his Redeemer, as his Savior, as his King, means that he's willing to give everything up for that. That by simply knowing Christ as his savior, as simply knowing Christ as his redeemer, he's given up everything from his past. And anything that's not aligned with Christ, anything that's not in line with, with, with the gospel, Paul, doesn't, it doesn't matter, Paul. That if it stood in competition to who he was in Christ, Paul did not care about it. And he literally means in anything and everything. And So we see that, that as new creation, as we have this new identity, what we have is a renewing of the mind that Paul talks about in Romans 12:1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be confronted to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as new creations, as new creatures in God, we have to be transformed by the renewing of the mind that Christ comes in and through the Holy Spirit, the way that we worked before no longer is true. That we've been given a new spirit, we've been given a new, a new identity in Christ, and that at some point that we have to, at some point, sacrifice things because of that new identity, because we're not the same person that we were, because we're different, because we have the Holy Spirit, and we've been transformed, we've been given this new mind. This all has happened because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That if you know Christ as your Savior, if you know Christ as your your Redeemer, as your King, as your Lord... But at some point, something changes and you are a new, are a new person. And in that, in being new, and being a new creature, the things that used to entertain you, the things that you used to find joy in, you no longer truly find joy in, because you find joy in just knowing that Christ is your Redeemer, knowing that Christ is your Savior, and that's where you find joy. And it's so overwhelming, it's so great, that it leads us to just being willing to sacrifice whatever we need to. Because we know Christ as Redeemer, we know Him as our Savior. Lastly, Christ above everything means that we have to be trusting, and we have to trust in in faith. That we, our righteousness is found in Christ. That our salvation is found in Christ. And we have to, we have to believe that. We have to hold on to that. She is in, in the last two verses, in nine, 9 through 11, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so what we see here is that Paul is talking about two different types of righteousness, the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of Christ. One brings death while the other brings salvation. We see that that, that ultimately what what he's talking about is that the righteousness of the law depends on man, depends on man really to add to the gospel and make their own rules or, or what they can or cannot do. It's man, the righteousness of the law depends on man making themselves blameless before a holy and righteous God, which isn't possible. It's this idea of of what the Pharisees did all throughout throughout the um, Old Testament into the New Testament, this idea that they added to the law. And it's this idea that if we submit ourselves to the righteousness of the law and we think that we can save ourselves according to our works, what we're really saying is that we know better than the Creator. You know, it's like, it's like a toddler who tells you, tells a parent, no, I do this. That's my son, by the way. My son, he just, he thinks he knows better than his mother and I. And then he falls and he hurts himself and it takes everything Simon to say, ha ha. But it's this idea, it's this mentality that we have sometimes like toddlers that we think we know better than God Himself. That we can tell God how it's going to work. That we're going to do this, and through, by doing ABC, now we're saved. Or by looking X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be, that now we're saved. Now that we have righteousness of our own, we're able to come before a holy and righteous God blameless. And this idea that, that we start adding things to the gospel. Because the truth is, is this, that we trust ourselves more than we trust the gospel of Christ. When we have this mentality that we can do it on our own, what we're saying is that we trust our works more than than we trust the works of Jesus. That's what it means when we we try to come before God and we try to do things a certain way and we think we know better and we try to find righteousness according to the law, according to what we do. We put faith in us rather than we put faith in God. And we miss completely what Paul says here, to be found in him. It's to have unity in him. What Paul is talking about is to have unity with Christ. And it's through, we have this opportunity through faith that is given to us through God to be spiritually united with Christ. And by being spiritually united in Christ, we now have the righteousness of Christ that's been credited to us, that's been mm-hmm. imputed onto us. Which means that it's through Christ, it's through his, through his righteousness that's been imputed, that's been given to us, that we are now not found guilty before a holy and righteous judge. It's not ourselves, it's not what we do, but it's what Christ did on the cross. And as this new identity, as, as having Christ above everything, we have to believe this. We have to believe that it's through Christ's death and resurrection that we are saved, that we have salvation. It's through his righteousness being given to us that we can be found not guilty and be blameless before a holy and righteous God. This is the only way to receive this verdict of not guilty. It's not by the works that we do. It's not by how many times you pray or how many times you read your Bible or how many times you come to church or how many times you sit in Sunday school. None of that matters. You're not saved by any of that. You're saved by the work of Christ on the cross and his righteousness being imputed onto you, being credited to you. And it's only at that moment that God looks at us and sees us blameless because of the work that Christ did, the perfect obedience that Christ displayed while, while here on earth, by going to the cross, by dying a sinner's death, by taking our, our wrath on him. And that is how we are now saved, not by anything that we do. And we sometimes, we, have, we struggle with believing that. But we have to truly understand what our new identity in Christ is. It's that you're made perfect. You're made blameless because of the work that Christ did, not because you did anything. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Simply put, justified means being declared righteous by God, or, or counted righteous. That we know that no one is declared righteous by God, by works of the law, but by through faith in Christ Jesus. And it's in that faith, it's in saying, Lord, you, I accept Your work on the cross, thank you for it. And now, through your life, through Christ coming, through God, regenerating you, having faith in Christ Jesus, you are now declared righteous by God. And all this leads to, to, to us knowing Christ, as it says in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. That, that we are able now, as, as people who are found righteous through Christ's righteousness being given to us, to have a personal relationship with Christ and to share in the sufferings of him. And understand that, that he now has true power. That he sits at the right hand of God. And it's having this personal relationship with Christ. Because we're able, because of what God has done. Because of the work that Christ did. Not because of what we did. But because of what Christ did on the cross. Paul says to become like him in his death. That we may, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Let the go, the end goal at the end of the day. Was to be raised again at Christ's second coming and to spend eternity with God. And the only way that we're able to receive that, the only way that that is possible, it's through the work of Christ on the cross. That if we're going to sit here and say that it's Christ above all, that he is reigning true in our lives, that he is the king, that he is our savior and lord, that we have to understand that it's not by our works. that is by what Christ did. We have to stand firm in that new creation, in that understanding that Christ is our righteousness. That it's because of what Christ did on the cross that we're able to be declared righteous before a holy and righteous God. So my prayer is that as we go through this week, that we walk in this, that as we as we as we declare that Christ is above all things in our life, that we truly understand what that means. That we have been given a righteousness that is not of ours, but it's of Christ. And that's through his work, it's through his life that we're able to be declared righteous. We are for a holy and righteous God. And we walk in, in that truth. Not that we're able to get things done on ourselves, but that Christ is doing all. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you, Lord. We thank you for, for the fact that you loved us so much. You love your creation so much that you sent your son to die for them, Lord. And that you, you being, being sovereign, you being all-powerful, you being all-knowing, know exactly what you're doing, Lord and that you've, you've plucked us out, out of our, our wretchedness, that you've plucked us out, out of our death, Lord, and you've given us a new life, that you've, and you've given us the righteousness of Christ out of your love and out of your mercy and out of your grace, Father God, that we did not do anything to earn this, but it's that you work in your creation, Father God. We thank you for that, Lord. Keep us safe today, Lord, as the roads are wet, as we travel. Keep us safe as we go home. May we take this day to just bask in, in, in your truth, Lord, that we may take this day to spend perhaps more time than we would on a normal day in your word. Lord, be with us. Bless the meal, Lord, that we're about to partake in, Lord. Bless the conversations around the table that we have, Lord. May we be, may we be honored, may we be lifted up by the conversations we'll have today, Lord. Be with us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for your grace over our lives, Father. Be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.